Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 117. It's a continuation of what we started in episode 116 when we began to tell the history of the Mafia. We're not finished yet. Yes, I know it's a bit of a wander, and certainly it's nothing more than a rudimentary background to a complex topic, one that has many fingers of the lake, as I like to say. And perhaps playing off that same analogy, there might be a finger or two missing from this particular wander. But wouldn't that just be poetically correct, given that we are talking about the mafia? Again, for those of you who have studied the topic, it might be a bit of a yawn. But for those of you that haven't, it's really a primer of how this organism that was the mafia evolved and got ahead of law enforcement in this country and embedded itself in so many ways, in so many important facets of our American society. It took a while for the government and society to catch up, but in the rapidly changing world we live in, they did. They finally did. As we wander through the remainder of what I will share on the historical side of the mafia over the next several episodes, we'll start this episode with that moment in time when the mafia began to organize itself corporately, so to speak, with a true organization chart, a pecking order. Let's pause for just a second and describe it. First, at the head of everything is the boss. The boss is the head of the family, usually reigning as a dictator, sometimes called the Don or Godfather. The boss receives a cut of every operation. Operations are taken on by every member of the family and of the region's occupying family. Depending on the family, the boss may be chosen by a vote from the capital regimes of the family or captains. In the event of a tie, the underboss must vote. In the past, all the members of a family voted on the boss, but by the late 1950s, any gathering such as that usually attracted too much attention. So in practice, many of these selections are seen as having an inevitable result, such as that which happened with John Gotti in 1986. According to Sammy the Bull Gravano, a meeting was held in a basement during which all capos were searched and Gotti's men stood ominously behind them. Gotti was then proclaimed boss. The next position is the underboss. The underboss is usually appointed by the boss and is the second in command of the family. The underboss often runs the day-to-day responsibilities of the family or oversees its most lucrative rackets. He usually gets a percentage of the family's income from the boss's cut. The underboss is usually first in line to become acting boss if the boss is imprisoned, and is also frequently seen as a logical successor. Consigliere. The consigliere is an advisor to the family, and he sometimes is seen as the boss's right-hand man. He is used as a mediator of disputes and often acts as a representative or aid for the family in meetings with other families or rival criminal organizations and important business associates. In practice, the consigliere is normally the third-ranking member of the administration of a family and has traditionally been a senior member carrying the utmost respect of the family and deeply familiar with the inner workings of the organization. A boss will often appoint a trusted close friend or personal advisor as his official consigliere. The next position is a capo regime or capo. 
A caporegime, also captain or skipper, is in charge of a crew, a group of soldiers who report directly to him. Each crew usually contains 10 to 20 soldiers and many more associates. A capo is appointed by the boss and reports to him or the underboss. A captain gives a percentage of his and his underlings' earnings to the boss and is also responsible for any tasks assigned, including murder. In labor racketeering, it is usually a capo who controls the infiltration of union locals. If a capo becomes powerful enough, he can sometimes wield more power than some of his superiors. In cases like Anthony Carrillo, they might even bypass the normal mafia structure and leave the family when the boss dies. Finally, you have a soldier or soldato in Italian. A soldato or soldier is an inducted or made member of the mafia. Anyone in the hierarchy had to be full-blooded Italian-Americans, while associates could come from any background. All inducted members of the mafia are called made men. This signifies that they are untouchable in the criminal underworld and any harm brought to them will be met with retaliation. With the exception of associates, all mobsters within the mafia are made official members of a crime family. When a boss makes a decision, he rarely issues orders directly to workers uh, who would carry it out, but instead passes instructions down through the chain of command. This way, the higher levels of the organization are insulated from law enforcement attention if the lower-level members who actually commit the crime should be captured or investigated. In a sense, it provides them with plausible deniability. There are occasionally other positions in the family leadership. Frequently, ruling panels have been set up when a boss goes to jail to divide the responsibility of the family. Usually these consist of somewhere between three and five members. This also helps to divert police attention from any one member. This says a lot about the structure within a given crime family, and Luciano gets credit for this system of hierarchy inside one of the families. But perhaps, more importantly, he is also given credit for overhauling the way that the various crime families work with one another. Luciano got rid of the old system, known as Capo di tutti capi, or boss of all bosses. Luciano created the commission in 1931, where the bosses of the most powerful families would have equal say and vote on important matters and solve disputes between families. This group ruled over the National Crime Syndicate and brought in an era of peace and prosperity for the American Mafia. By mid-century, there were 26 official commission-sanctioned Mafia crime families, each based in a different city, except for the five families, which were all based in New York City. Each family operated independently from the others and generally had exclusive territory that it controlled. As opposed to the older generation of what they called mustache peats, such as Maranzano and Masseria, who usually worked only with fellow Italians, these young Turks now, led by Luciano, were more open to working with other groups, most notably the Jewish-American criminal syndicates, and they did so to achieve greater profits. Combine this with the oath of loyalty and secrecy and the idea of omerta, and the mafia ended up 
pretty quickly with a truly strong organizational structure, one that would allow it to conduct organized crime on a grand scale at a time in society when there was no electronic age, at a time when you could be a soldier in the secret army of the mafia, pull up on a street corner in a car, look left and right, see that there was no one looking at you, and then pull the trigger. And then someone who had been giving the boys a hard time was gone, and no one saw it, and no one would tell. And if someone did see it, they dare not tell or they might be killed too, or at least intimidated. In those times, there was mostly local law enforcement on the trail of these bad boys. And in the early years of the mob, it was before there was a strong set of federal laws that could be enforced related to their crimes. And frankly, it was before the FBI was either willing or able to acknowledge that a national syndicate of epic proportions actually existed. Singular criminals, yes, but nothing was ever acknowledged by the government that was along the lines and scale of what was really there underneath the covers. There were no electronic surveillance laws or techniques, and telephone conversations were, in those early years, not available for evidence in cases. It was not until the writing of the RICO statute in the 1970s, a piece of federal legislation that allowed for a criminal conspiracy to be charged as a federal crime and reach all the way to the top of the criminal organization without the Don ever having laid a finger on anyone's head or committing the actual crime. It was only then that the federal government was really able to get after the mafia. But wait a minute. We are getting ahead of ourselves again here. Let's back up the tape just a bit. Coming out of the Prohibition period, the tremendous financial opportunity and profits that were accumulated that came out of that era allowed the criminal organization of the mafia to progress. And it was a simple hierarchical structure, but it was highly effective. And because it operated under secrecy and the oath of Omerta and the threat of instant death if the loyalty was ever violated, well, as a result, the rattlesnake never committed suicide, so to speak. If the police didn't see it, it didn't happen because there were no other witnesses to the crime. And if it didn't happen, it couldn't be prosecuted. In the golden age, with not one cell phone or cell phone camera or street cam or listening device, well, as the mafia might say, it was a hell of a wide open town, baby. And that continued for a long time, beginning in the 1920s and extending into the 1930s. But by the time the late 1930s rolled around, society began to become more intolerant of the lawlessness that was beginning to spin out of control after the country plunged into the Great Depression of the 1930s. Now, no matter who you were, if you were a criminal, the general populace was demanding more justice. Yet, there was still a Robin Hood element to it in those times as well, where the bad boys got some followers too a following that romanticized what they might be doing. Overall, though, it was a subtle societal change to more intolerance that was a natural pivot out of the 1920s and into the 1930s. As prohibition was repealed and the mob began to pivot its own efforts into other areas economically, including things like waste management, the garbage business turned out to be a twofer. 
It was lucrative enough, and it was a great place to get rid of a dead body from time to time as well. So on the government side, it then became a question of how we might rid the world of some of these more terrible scoundrels using the rather skinny laws that were available at the time. Al Capone was taken down by the feds for violating income tax laws. But beyond that, there weren't many criminal acts that violated federal statutes in those days. Murder, burglary, and the like, these crimes were all state crimes and not federal crimes. But guess what? There was another angle here that could be applied to these Italians. You see, there was mass immigration that took place in the early part of the 20th century that did result in federal immigration laws. And as the authorities scratched their heads, some of these immigration laws came into full focus. And it was decided that they were just the thing that would be needed to dropkick the biggest mafia hoodlums right out of the country and back to Italy or, or back somewhere. And the first momentous case of this was Lucky Luciano. You'll hear more of his story in the episode today. But the important connection to our story that is JFK, The Enduring Secret, starts with him. Because the government used its full force to extradite him. And then, just when it looked like his mafia gig would be up, and he would be ordering most of his food in Italian, this little thing called World War II came along. And at the outset of the conflict for the Americans, the Germans became a real threat with their U-boats along the east coast of the United States. And there was a real concern about whether spies existed on the docks in New York, spies that might be providing critical information to the Nazi government, and that was resulting in our cargo and carrier ships being sabotaged. Well, enter the Mafia. Because, well, the Mafia by that time in the history of things happened to have controlled the docks in New York, primarily through the Longshoremen's Union. Now, for the first time, the Mafia was in a position to provide something quite valuable to the U.S. government in the form of information and protection. And it did. And lucky enough for Lucky Luciano, even though he was one foot over the border in the extradition process, Luciano was able to negotiate with the American government to avoid that extradition. And this was the beginning of more collaboration with Luciano that lasted throughout the war effort, as Luciano subsequently aided the process when the Americans were planning their invasion of Sicily in the Italian mainland. And the precious connection between the American mafia chieftains and certain elements of the Italian mafia became critical to the planning of an American military success, or so it seemed to someone in the American military. So you see, long before the CIA asked the Mafia to help them in Cuba, there was history there of the Mafia helping the government in a critical wartime circumstance. As we have said, circumstances sometimes make for strange bedfellows, and this is the original example. And this time frame also encompasses the beginnings of the government applying extradition proceedings to Italian figures in the American Mafia. So you see... It wasn't really anything new when Bobby Kennedy went after Carlos Marcello in a similar way and tried to have him deported. Might have been a new play applied to Marcello, but it was an old playbook that the government had begun to use all the way back in the 1930s. It was an approach that was already established within the U.S. government justice system well before Jack and Bobby Kennedy showed up on the scene. My gosh, I'm getting so excited about this episode and we haven't even started it yet. Well, 
I guess we really have. So, without further ado, let's listen to the rest of episode 117 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. They named it Operation Underworld. During the early days of World War II, the U.S. Office of Naval Intelligence suspected that Italian and German agents were entering the United States through New York and that these facilities were susceptible to sabotage. Then it happened. On the afternoon of February 9, 1942, while it was in the process of being converted into a troop ship, the luxury ocean liner SS Normandy mysteriously burst into flames. It had on board about 1,500 sailors and civilians, right there in New York. All but one person escaped, but 128 were injured, and by the next day the ship was a smoking hull lying on its side at the pier. In his report about 12 years later, William Herlands, who was the commissioner of the investigation, made the case for the U.S. government talking to top criminals, stating that the intelligence authorities were greatly concerned with the problems of sabotage and espionage. Suspicions were rife with respect to the leaking of information about convoy movements. The Normandie, which was being converted to war use as the Navy Auxiliary Lafayette, had burned at the pier in the North River in New York City. Sabotage was suspected. The loss of the SS Normandy in February 1942 was a turning point in the government's thinking about how to go about dealing with the German circumstance. A Navy intelligence unit, B-3, assigned more than 100 agents to investigate possible Benito Mussolini supporters within the predominantly Italian-American fishermen and dock worker population on the waterfront. Their efforts were fruitless as the dock workers and fishermen in the Italian mafia-controlled waterfront were tight-lipped and distant to strangers. The U.S. government wanted the New York waterfront free from saboteurs after the destruction of the SS Normandy. This spectacular disaster related to the Normandy convinced both sides to talk seriously about protecting the United States' east coast. The Navy contacted Meyer Lansky, a known associate of Salvatore C. Luciano, and one of the top non-Italian associates of the Mafia. They would talk about a deal with the Mafia boss, Luciano. Luciano, as we all know, was also known as Lucky Luciano, and he was one of the highest-ranking Mafia both in Italy and the U.S. And at the time, he was serving a 30- to 50-year sentence in the Clinton prison for compulsory prostitution. To facilitate the negotiations, the state of New York moved Luciano from the Clinton prison to Great Meadow Correctional Facility, which is much closer to New York City. The state of New York, Luciano, and the Navy struck a deal in which Luciano guaranteed full assistance of his organization 
in providing intelligence to the Navy. In addition, Luciano Associate Albert Anastasia, who controlled the docks and ran Murder, Inc., allegedly guaranteed no dock worker strikes throughout the war. In return, the state of New York agreed to commute Luciano's sentence. Luciano's actual influence is really actually uncertain, but the authorities did note that the dock worker strike stopped after the deal was reached with Luciano. As World War II progressed, Luciano was called on again to help the Americans as the Americans activated Project Husky, the code name for the undercover work done to use the American mafia to help during the invasion and liberation of Sicily. Through Luciano's associates, they would find numerous Sicilians to help the naval intelligence services draw maps of the harbors of Sicily and dig up old snapshots of the coastline. Vino Genovese, another mafia boss, offered his services to the U.S. Army and became an interpreter and advisor to the U.S. Army military government in Naples. He quickly became one of AMGOT's most trusted employees. Through the Navy Intelligence's mafia contacts from Operation Underworld, the names of Sicilian underworld personalities and friendly Sicilian natives, ones who could be trusted, were obtained and actually used in the Sicilian campaign. The Joint Staff Planners, or JSP, for the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff drafted a report entitled Special Military Plan for Psychological Warfare in Sicily, and it recommended the establishment of contact and communications with the leaders of separatist nuclei, disaffected workers, and clandestine radical groups, e.g. the mafia, and giving them every possible aid, end quote. The report was approved by the Joint Chiefs of Staff in Washington on April 15, 1943. As the war came to an end and Luciano's value to the American military dwindled, in the summer of 1945, Luciano petitioned the state of New York for executive clemency citing his assistance to the Navy. Naval authorities, embarrassed that they had to recruit organized crime to help in their war effort, declined to confirm Luciano's claim. However, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office validated the facts, and the State Parole Board unanimously agreed to recommend to the governor that Luciano be released and deported immediately. On January 4, 1946, New York Governor Thomas E. Dewey the former prosecutor who actually placed Luciano into prison commuted Lucky Luciano's sentence on the condition that he did not resist deportation to Italy. Dewey stated, and I quote, Upon the entry of the United States into the war, Luciano's aid was sought by the armed services in inducing others to provide information concerning possible enemy attack. It appears that he cooperated in such effort, although the actual value of the information procured is not clear. End quote. Luciano was deported to his homeland, Italy, on February 9, 1946. There was a real media hype about the event and Luciano's role after his deportation. The syndicated columnist and radio broadcaster Walter Winchell even reported in 1947 that Luciano would receive the Medal of Honor for his secret services. Imagine that, the Medal of Honor. <laughs> yes, war does make for some strange bedfellows, doesn't it? 
No doubt the story that you have just heard has real significance to our story that is JFK, The Enduring Secret. You see, it demonstrates the existence of the mafia infiltration of the unions and the U.S. government's acknowledgement of it and then the U.S. government's use of it to help protect the country during the height of World War II. The event itself is precedent-setting and establishes that the government knew the deep penetration into the unions that the mafia had and it condoned. The government even used that penetration where the government felt it was for the good of the order. And remember, it was wartime, so these were practical wartime decisions being made by military men. And remember that military men, shortly after the war was over, would occupy the initial set of leadership roles in the newly formed CIA. These circumstances, these behaviors, these practical capitulations for the good of the order, even if one might want to hold their nose while doing it, were already part of the DNA, or at least the MO, of the Covert Operations Group of the CIA. And because the CIA was not chartered to engage in domestic spying or domestic operations, Covert actions in this country would have to be carried out by someone else, someone capable of doing the act and someone capable of keeping their mouth shut about it. Well, imagine that. The mafia, at least in some circumstances, fit the bill perfectly, fit the bill domestically. Whether these Italian-American mafia figures had an ounce of patriotism for the new country for America, whether some of this was true patriotism, well, we'll probably never know. But it's my guess that probably most of their decision to deal with the government was not altruistic. It was a practical business consideration. Situationally, it might mean the avoidance of a deportation proceeding. It might mean that the authorities might lay off the mafia or lay off some investigation or slow walk it. In general, it might mean a shot of goodwill that could later serve as a get-out-of-jail-almost-scot-free card for someone caught in the government's web without a paddle. In any case, as we pivoted past 1945 and entered the post-war era, the mafia worked hard to keep its hands on the politicians, and they now understood that they could, from time to time, be helpful to the covert elements of our government where it could. And that, in turn would be good for the good fellas. It was an uneasy truth and an uneasy alliance and truly a nefarious existence. Things were changing and the mob knew it. They were branching into more and more legitimate businesses to reinvest their capital and hide their profits. Their infiltration of the unions presented an especially unique opportunity to divert pension funds and make gigantic real estate investments, real estate bets really, we all know today that a good bit of Las Vegas was financed through monies that came through those pension funds. In those days, pension investing was uber conservative and still is to some extent today. But in those days, having a pension fund whose portfolio consists of more than 5% real estate would have been highly unusual. But at one point, the Teamsters pension fund consisted of more than 70% real estate. All in all, much of the various real estate in pension funds controlled by the mafia was Vegas real estate. What is worse is that they were investments not made at arm's length or without disclosure of the conflicts of interest that existed around those transactions. 
If you were to talk to Jimmy Hoffa, he might have said that it was a legitimate way for the union to maximize the returns that were coming to its members. To the authorities, it was a reckless attempt to redirect the massive cash funds in those pension plans to fuel illegal businesses that were run by the mafia, and the fiduciaries of those pension funds were either mafia-controlled or mafia-influenced or were simply mafia themselves. And they got away with this behavior during another window of time, especially between 1945 and about 1955, just long enough to invest massive amounts of money in a state called Nevada and much of it in a city called Las Vegas. Once again, they had a jumpstart on the feds and the local law enforcement model, and they took advantage of the location in the middle of the desert and what at the time must have seemed like the middle of nowhere. As I said, this onslaught of money injected into Las Vegas through the mafia would begin just after World War II with the opening of the first gambling resort, the Flamingo. A tremendous amount of capital over the years would be invested in new casino resorts that would lay the foundation for further economic growth. This capital didn't come from one mafia family alone, but many throughout the country seeking to gain even more power and wealth. Large profits from casinos run as legitimate businesses would help to finance many of the illegal activities of the mafia from the 1950s all the way into the 1980s. In the 1950s, more mafia-financed casinos were constructed, such as the Stardust, the Sahara, the Tropicana, the Desert Inn, and the Riviera. Vegas is a unique place, and it grew rapidly in those days and enjoyed tremendous expansion that continued into the 21st century. And the 1950s were, in some sense, its heyday for mafia influence, growing by leaps and bounds, even as the great underground existence of the mafia was in the early stages of coming to an end. By the 1960s, the mafia's influence in the Las Vegas economy began to dwindle. The Nevada state government and the federal government had been working to weaken mafia activity on the Strip. And in 1969, the Nevada state legislature passed a law that made it easier for corporations to own casinos. That small legal change in the law turned out to be a surprisingly powerful pivot away from the mafia. What's more, their clubs were havens for famous people and famous actors, some performing, some just enjoying the atmosphere as they did in the day. And let's face it, while most of the mafia members wanted no public recognition or exposure and would have preferred to have lived in the shadows, there were some who loved the limelight. Johnny Roselli and Sam Giancana are two that come to mind. More about those two characters in other episodes as they play rather heavily into the story that is JFK, The Enduring Secret. But you get my drift here. Players like Sam Giancana, Frank Sinatra, Marilyn Monroe, John Kennedy, that was the kind of lineup that could be in one of the casinos in the club together on any given night. You really can't make this stuff up. It was a hell of a wide-open place. The Mafia was already highly engaged in gambling operations all the way across the East, so it wasn't a giant leap to do what they were doing in Vegas. But the light of day would finally begin to catch up. Even the mob could not overcome the rapidly changing world of mass communication, 
They can no longer suppress the true facts around the widespread infiltration of the mafia in so many essential elements of life. From garbage to gambling, something had to give. Something was about to give. And then it did. It was dubbed The Great Awakening by Robert Blakey. And you can hear that next part of the story of the Mafia, the story about the Great Awakening, in the next episode of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Jimmy so happy. He was like a kid. We had money coming in through my Pittsburgh people, and even after a while, the Lufthansa thing began to calm down. But the thing that made Jimmy so happy that morning was that this was the day that Tommy was being made. Jimmy was so excited, you'd think he was being made. He must have made four calls to Tommy's house. They had a signal all set up so he'd know that the minute that the ceremony was over. You know, we always called each other good fellas. Like you'd say to uh, somebody, you're going to like this guy, he's all right. He's a good fella, he's one of us. You understand? We were good fellas, wise guys. Jimmy and I could never be made because we had Irish blood. It didn't even matter that my mother was Sicilian. To become a member of a crew, you've got to be 100% Italian so they can trace all your relatives back to the old country. See, it's the highest honor they can give you. It means you belong to a family and a crew. It means that nobody can fuck around with you. It also means you could fuck around with anybody just as long as they aren't also a member. It's like a license to steal. It's a license to do anything. As far as Jimmy was concerned with Tommy being made, it was like we were all being made. We would now have one of our own as a member. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Who's this? This is Vinny. Vinny, what happened? Well, we get straight out? No, we had a problem. I mean, uh, we tried to do everything we could. What do you mean? Well, you know what I mean. He's gone. And we couldn't do nothing about it. That's it. What do you mean? What do you mean? Uh, He's gone. He's gone. And that's it. Fuck. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I 
Thank you for listening to episode 117 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.